0: Uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 4 stands up in the synagogue in that uh, in Nazareth and on the Sabbath he comes in there and on a typical Sabbath of course any pious Jew any, any Jew actually interested in God would be there and what was typical in a Sabbath gathering was that there would be public readings of Word of God, the Torah, the prophets, things like that. And so I think it would be typical from the historians and things that have actually done the research for um, the rulers of the synagogue to call on people to do readings. And typically, what people that might get called on would be um, well known members of the community that were Jews. Um, well regarded or esteemed teachers that might be passing through the area they might be given an opportunity to read a scripture, a prophecy or whatever and maybe even expound on it a little bit Um, and Jesus in this reading that Daniel gave for us has an opportunity to do that this is his hometown, they probably knew him well he'd probably been in the Sabbath, uh, been there on the Sabbath who knows how many times in his life and so it probably was a fair thing for them to know him, to call on him and say, Hey, do you have a teaching or a, a, a reading for us? And in this text, Jesus takes this opportunity because it says it's his custom to be there. He takes his opportunity. And he stands up to read and he pulls out the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And I have no idea what Jesus would have looked like or anything like that. But I just imagine this guy unfurling this scroll. And what we would call the 61st chapter of Isaiah, Um, I have no idea how many scrolls Isaiah took up, or if it was just like one giant scroll, I imagine it wasn't. So whichever scroll he unrolls, he turns to this 61st chapter of Isaiah, and he reads what we would say are the first couple verses of that chapter. And this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Some translations say afflicted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Good reading. A very hopeful reading. I mean, if I was just going to stand up in a crowd of believers that were... Waiting for God to, like, make his big move to restore them to glory and, like, provide all these blessings. This would be a popular reading. But this is where this story maybe takes, it zags when maybe you expect it to zig. Jesus reads this, and then he says in verse 20, he rolls up that scroll again. He gives it back to the guy who, I guess, is in charge of scrolls or whatever. And he sits down. And so it's almost as if people are expecting him to elaborate on the teaching. I think that was the custom. You might read something and talk about it a little like we do. And everybody's kind of looking at him. And while he's sitting down, this is what's said. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the zig when you're expecting the zag. Like you expect... Maybe an examination of what the promises are about. What is God actually saying? Or maybe you expect uh, an explanation of the Messiah and what that's going to look like and maybe what to be looking for because they are expecting him. But Jesus just sits down and says, this is done. (laughs) That's what fulfilled means, right? Like, this is completed. Now, you and I... Hopefully you're in this room because you recognize Jesus as being the Messiah that fulfilled all these prophecies and things like it. But even for you and me, or maybe I'll just speak for myself, even for me, it seems kind of odd because Jesus, this is Luke chapter 4. He hasn't done a whole lot in the account of Luke yet as far as his ministry is concerned. And certainly he hasn't completed like his mission, and that was to be innocent and offer that innocent life for all of us who are guilty. And he certainly hadn't done that so that he could raise from the dead three days later to prove that he actually was who he said he was, that he had the power over death. And so this is kind of an odd thing to think that in Luke 4, before any of that happens, Jesus is like, this is fulfilled. So I want to talk a little bit about that today. I want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that are said in this. So I want to turn to Isaiah 61 and actually look at what Jesus um, was quoting here. Isaiah chapter 61. I'm sure if you're familiar with reading, particularly the New Testament, but if you read the New Testament, you actually go look at the quotations in their like context in the Old Testament. you'll often find that the quotations vary slightly. Um, like Paul might make a quotation in one of the letters that he writes, and when you go back it reads like marginally differently. Um, That happened, if you notice, when you read Isaiah 61 from what Jesus said. It it varied marginally. Um, But let's read Isaiah 61. I want to read three verses here, just the first three. I don't have time this morning to go through the whole of Isaiah 61. But I just want you to know that it is probable that even though Jesus stopped his reading at more or less verse 2, It is probable that he was invoking much more than just those two verses by citing them, right? And so just keep that in mind. If you have time on your own to read Isaiah 61, maybe at lunch or something, there's so much in this that Jesus fulfills. But I think he was trying to highlight the first two verses as being fulfilled in that moment. But ultimately, I think Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in the lifespan of Jesus. Uh, But let's read the first three verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the lord that he may be glorified all right i'll stop there jesus only cited the first two verses when he stood up in that synagogue and he unrolled the scroll and he said particularly those two verses that's what we call them right verses but that that section is the part that In that very moment, Jesus is like, this is completed. The reason I included verse three is I think it informs the why. Um, We're going to talk about that a little bit more. I think all of Isaiah 61 hits at the why, but we get most of it, I think, quickly in verse three. So I wanna I want to talk about how Jesus proclaims the year of the Lord's favor and like how exactly he fulfilled that. I want to offer a caveat before I start though. Prophecies are difficult. They're difficult because it's God trying to reveal his plans and purposes to people who don't always get it. And so I struggle with that just like you do. So in my explanation, I'm, there may be things that you have questions about that I don't offer an answer to in this lesson. and may be because I just didn't think to put it in here. Maybe because I don't have an answer. But I want us to examine this prophecy not for loopholes or parts that we're missing or don't understand, but to see what we can see in it. So I just kind of want to offer that. Um, Certainly, I don't have a perfect understanding of the prophecies. But from what I see in Luke 4 and what I read in Isaiah 61, I think there are some things we can see for sure. Beginning in verse 1, I want to focus in for a second on this phrase. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. I want us to to think about that for a second. What is Isaiah, because Isaiah 61 is in the voice of Isaiah, saying? Well, I think it's interesting that Isaiah is speaking in chapter 61 as one who has been anointed and one who has been sent and one who has the spirit of the Lord. Oftentimes when we look at prophecies, we'll have a person, like let's say I were to write a prophecy. I would, if God inspired me to write something, I would be the voice behind that writing, but oftentimes I would write. In the voice of someone else or something else, right? So literally, Isaiah might be the one putting the the pen to the paper, so to speak, but he might say, the Lord says, right? And we understand that like Isaiah's like the vessel through which the Lord is communicating. But sometimes there's these instances where he's not Isaiah, he's not the voice of Isaiah, and he's not exclusively the voice of the Lord. There's times where it's like he's someone else. That's kind of unnamed and we kind of piece together who that is well I think verse one is giving us this idea is that he's someone the Lord God has put the spirit on and he's someone who's been anointed and he's going to talk about the reason he's been anointed this is what we typically call like a messianic prophecy like there's one promised here in fact uh, when we look at this like uh, this idea of anointing I've never been anointed I've never been in a culture that really does that much and i've never been in like a family that did that kind of thing Um, some religions still do that some faith systems do that even some cultural like just where you grew up people do that sometimes the idea of anointing biblically is just this idea like in exodus 28 that like priests were literally given oil over themselves to kind of denote that they've been tasked with a special thing by god or a role Right, Kings were often anointed um, as a show of leadership, as a show of uh, power and all the things that come with the, the, the crown. We might say they'd be anointed. Well, certainly in the old world, in history, that was a prominent and important thing. And so this person, this voice that Isaiah is speaking of, has been anointed and been given the spirit of the Lord. And so I think it's important to see that. I think it's important to understand that the prophecies of the Messiah, which just means the promised one, the one that was spoken of coming, is often referred to as one having been anointed. And so I think it's fair to say, and especially as we continue to move through these verses, that it's clear that this is not Isaiah saying he's anointed and he's going to do this stuff. This is, he's talking about, in his own voice, someone else that's been picked out to do this. And I hope that it's clear from Luke 4, right? Jesus is saying he's that one, right? But Isaiah identifies that, or Jesus even identifies himself as being the one anointed, as being filled with the Spirit. Um, and it's important to see that Jesus, when, in Luke 4, when he reads from this text, he gives the purpose, in a broad sense, why he's been anointed and why he has a Spirit, because he's come to bring good news To the afflicted or to the poor. When you think about Jesus' life, it really wasn't like kings and priests and governors that responded well to him. It tended to be the marginalized, the poor, the afflicted. God set it up that way. Isaiah 61's proof That he was designed, his purpose was such that the poor and afflicted stood the most to benefit from the one who had been anointed and was given the Spirit of God. Now, what's important to know about that and to understand for those of us who are not poor, and I would say no one in this room really in the truest sense is poor in, in an absolute term, is that we're really poorer than we believe ourselves to be. There's more senses than money to be poor, right? Poor in spirit, uh, poor spiritually, poor, so many other ways. And so really Jesus was spent, sent for anyone who acknowledged their affliction, their poverty. But that tended to be people who couldn't escape it. <laughs> they knew they were poor. They had no reason to think otherwise, right? The sick, the lame, the blind, the people with no money, all those people. And so... Jesus was sent to bring good news to people like that so how do you bring good news to someone that is afflicted or poor you know I, I don't know if I have a great answer to that my my answer if I wasn't looking at Jesus and I had no spiritual understanding if I was a blank slate would say well bring the money <laughs> right like that's the solution if they're poor then what are they lacking money right resources there's a lot of poorness right like some people are poor in friendships like they have no friends right you'd say that they're poor in that regard bring them whatever resource or thing it is that they're lacking and they're not poor anymore well Jesus does that look in these verses he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God In this sequence of things, he identifies various types of afflicted people. The first one that he mentions is that there are brokenhearted people. Maybe you've been a brokenhearted person at some point in your life. Maybe you are right now. You can identify with that, what it is to be brokenhearted. Maybe you don't feel like you can identify with that, but maybe you've been around people that you know that are kind of that way or have been that way. Probably all of us can understand being brokenhearted. Right? Jesus, as the Anointed One, is the one sent with the Spirit of the Lord. He's here to bring good news to the brokenhearted, and that's specifically that He's here to like bind up that brokenness, right? I always think of mummies when I think of the word binding. Um, I remember watching this movie as a kid, and I don't even remember what movie it is. There's just this one scene that stuck out in my mind. I think it was a disney movie where this like mummy was running around and uh they defeated him by like literally unbinding him like they just like pulled that thing and he kind of unwound and fell apart and that's a silly image but that's kind of what god is hoping to do like your heart's all broken and messed up and god is sending someone to like wrap it back up like put it back together right the other thing is or the next thing is that there are people who are captives. And he says this kind of two different ways. He says captives and then he also says those who are bound or who, those who are prisoners. And what Jesus is hoping to do to bring good news to that kind of poverty is he's saying, you know what? If you're bound up, if you're a prisoner, if you're a captive, I have liberty for you. I have freedom. And I also am going to open up the places that you're bound in. Right? That's, that's the reading of the text the opening of the prison and the proclaiming of liberty I've never been in prison not like I've never been a prisoner or an inmate or anything like that I know people who have been and in a much smaller sense I've been like bound up or captive you know when I've done something bad with my parents or whatever but like in a much greater sense I know what it is to be restrained right to like want to be able to do something or pursue something or be something and literally be bound, like be restricted from that. There's a freedom or a liberty that I wish I could like grab onto and I just can't. Right? And sometimes it's my own fault. Sometimes it's circumstances. And Jesus is here to say, you know what? You're bound in. Maybe literally you're a prisoner or a captive and I'm here to set you free. But I think the much greater sense with all of these things is that there's a spiritual like truth undergirding this. There's something binding you. There's something making you a prisoner. And I'm here to like release that. Another, uh, The next thing in this sequence, of course, is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Which is contrasted against the day of the vengeance of our God. We have a year of favor and a day of vengeance. And so... Coincidentally, and I don't, I don't know if it's coincidentally, probably um, significantly, maybe purposefully, when Jesus stands up in that synagogue and he reads, he doesn't read the part about the day of vengeance of our God. Did you notice that? Like when we got to Isaiah 61, within that same kind of breath, there's the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. But he doesn't like read that part. I would assume that because of places like in John chapter three, verse seventeen, and John chapter twelve forty seven. I'm just going to pick one, um, but I'll say them again if you want to read both. I'm going to read from John th- uh, twelve forty seven, John twelve forty seven. But if you'd also like to look at John three seventeen, you can look at that on your own. But John twelve forty seven says this. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There's a very real sense that Jesus gives that when he came in the body to be the Messiah and to fulfill all these prophecies and to give himself as an offering of the world, that was the mission to be salvation. In fact, the other citation, John 3:17, that reads very similarly to this, comes right after John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But right on the heels of that, he does talk about how he didn't come to judge, right? Well, certainly we know Jesus does support the idea that there is a judgment. He speaks on that plenty. And so I think, significantly, Jesus in Luke chapter 4, when he stands up to say, this is fulfilled, well, it's because we know that the judgment comes when he comes back. And so that was not fulfilled right then. And so I think, significantly, Jesus doesn't say the day of vengeance of our God is fulfilled right then, because it wasn't. In Isaiah 61, I read this from some commentator, and I liked the phrasing that he used. Uh, In English, we put a comma between the favorable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. I like that he said that comma has stood for 2,000 years because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so we're still kind of sitting in the favorable year of the Lord. There's a proclamation that there's freedom, that there's a proclamation that there's a binding of broken hearts, and yet we're waiting on the day of the vengeance of our God because we know that Jesus comes again I like that idea and so Jesus says he's fulfilling these first parts well alright so that's kind of a what right that's like the statements made who is really poor because it's not about money it's not about you know the girl or the guy that let us down that broke our heart that one time that's not what Jesus is trying to say it's not, you know, about, like, literally being an inmate. Jesus doesn't come, like, with a like holy set of keys and let everybody out of prison. So what is he really getting at? I would imagine that most everybody in this room knows that Jesus is interested in spiritual things, that he came for spiritual reasons, and so your mind probably has already turned that direction. But it's worth saying that this prophecy of one who's been anointed, who has the Spirit of God is bringing good news about sin. We know Jesus' purpose was not to heal everybody. Like, not every lame person walked when Jesus was on the earth. Not every blind person saw. Not every sick person was made well. Jesus provided signs so that they would believe that just as uh, he says, you know that I have the power to forgive sins, rise and walk and take up your bed, right? So, when we look at this text, Jesus, or this Messiah that Jesus says he is him in Luke 4, he preaches good tidings to the, to the poor because sin impoverishes. Like, it makes you poor. Whatever thing, whatever wealth, whatever riches you have to bring to God is decimated when you've sinned. The Messiah is sent to heal the brokenhearted because sin ultimately does that. It breaks hearts. It breaks God's heart to see that, to be severed from you in that way. And ultimately, anyone who's conscientious of spiritual things knows sin is a heartbreaking thing to realize that you are involved in or that you have. Right? Jesus wants to mend that. The Messiah is sent to proclaim liberty to the captives because sin makes captives. Um, even paul talks about that right he even says things like i want to do what's right and of course i'm paraphrasing i want to do what's right right but he almost is compelled to do the thing that he doesn't want to do right like sin just kind of has this hold on us even though we realize it breaks our hearts and it makes us poor there's something about it that kind of keeps us captive and maybe it's a play on pride or hubris or whatever to, like, have my way even when I know it's wrong. But something about that, like, captivates us It makes us a prisoner. And so Jesus says, you know what? I'm here to bring liberty. I'm here to bring freedom. He's sent to open uh, the prisons because sin binds us up. The Messiah is sent to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Because sin oppresses us. And really this idea is drawn from teaching in the Old Testament about what it was to have a favorable year of the Lord. There was all these various, like, special years that God provides. When he had a nation, he wanted that nation's laws to reflect truths that are spiritual. And part of that was uh, every so often would come this time where any land that had been sold from the original, like, families that owned it had to return to them. Right? And there was things like if you uh, hurt someone else or, or rather took something from them. That's what I mean by hurt. If you like afflicted them, you had to restore beyond the affliction you incurred to them. Like if you stole something or abused them financially or took advantage of some business transaction, you had to restore more than what you took. And there was even times where God would say, all right. You've even sold yourselves or family members or whatever into bondage to maybe pay debts or to work out of work out arrangements. And there's a year where all of that goes away. These are all in senses like favorable times or you could say years of the Lord. Right? God had instilled in his people. There are times where God brings favor like, and everything is kind of made right, restored. Well, that's what God's alluding to here when he talks about the Messiah sent to proclaim this acceptable year. Because sin, what it wants to do is not let those captives free, not restore, not re- like pay restitution. It doesn't want to let you go. It wants to oppress and keep things the way they are. And God is here to proclaim. The Messiah has been brought to let people know about a time where God fixes that. So when Jesus stands up in Luke 4 and like he unrolls the scroll and he reads those, as we'd call them, those couple verses. And he sits down and everybody's kind of looking at him, expecting him maybe to say more. And he's sitting down and he just says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus is saying is he has done all of that already. Not that he will do it. And what this... Isaiah text is really saying is that God has sent. Well, Jesus was there, fulfilled. And God has proclaimed. And then we worked our way through all the things that he had proclaimed. And Jesus had done that. He had let people know that that time was there. He had let people know the year was there. He had brought people that were captive, news of liberty. He had brought people that had broken hearts, news of a binding. He had brought people who were afflicted. The gospel, the good news that God was forgiving. He had fulfilled um, this teaching, this prophecy rather. But look at the part that Jesus didn't really talk about. And that is verse 3. He didn't say this is fulfilled in your hearing. Um, But I do want to talk about this because I think it's important and short here. Here. We could go through all of Isaiah 61, but I'll just focus in on verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Because the weight of sin is so like devastating or grievous to us, Jesus, naturally, as the Messiah, the one who has fulfilled the first section, is going to have to comfort people. And verse 3 of Isaiah 61 is all the ways that Jesus is ready and willing to supply comfort to those who he's, like, ministering to. The people that were captive that he's letting go. The people that have broken hearts that he's binding. He's ready to comfort. And look at all the ways that he does this. Um... Verse 3, to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes. I've never been one to wear a headdress. Uh, but the picture here is like when you mourn, typically what's all over your face in biblical history, ashes. You just heap them on your head, right? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm going to replace that with a crown of sorts. In fact, this word here is translated in other texts like Exodus thirty nine twenty eight, some translations call it exquisite hats I thought that was funny um, exquisite hats Isaiah 3 um, it's called a headdress um, anyway the point is I think it's really supposed to be viewed almost like a crown like instead of having ashes you're going to have something like glorious an exquisite hat right on your head And as funny as that image is for me, the idea is that when God, when the Messiah is sent and he proclaims, he's ready to comfort. And instead of allowing you to just kind of wallow in your misery with ashes on your head, so to speak, he wants to replace that with something glorious, a crown, a beautiful headdress, as it were. Instead of the mourning, so he doesn't just like, you know how sometimes like you're sad and you'll like mask it, but you're still really sad. Jesus doesn't just come to like say, okay, you can stay sad, but just make sure you wear the headdress. Right? He says, I'm going to give you a headdress, and I actually want you to change how you feel, like what's going on. Because he says, instead of mourning, he's going to give out oil of gladness. Um, I don't know exactly like, how that works. right? Instead of feeling sad, instead of mourning, I'm going to receive an oil of gladness. But the idea is that like, you actually feel different. Right, Like you have the headdress and you're not like, oh, okay, I'll just like fake it till I make it kind of thing. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you this and I'm going to give you gladness as well. I'm going to replace the mourning, And also he says, instead of a faint spirit, right, this again is like kind of an internal thing. Instead of feeling faint and weak and just heavy hearted, you're going to have a garment that you kind of put on of praise. Which is the opposite of being faint or, or heavy hearted, right? There's a strength there, there's an energy there, there's praise. And so God is saying, I'm going to make you look different, I'm going to put a headdress on you, I'm going to make you feel different, instead of mourning you're going to be glad, and you're going to have praise instead of weakness or faintness about you. Jesus is willing to do all these things for the people that he's freeing, for the people that he's binding their hearts for. He's proclaiming that that's possible, and he's willing to help with the mourning by doing all this other stuff as well. So not only does Jesus change the state that we're in, right, brokenhearted to having a bound heart, captive to being free, He changes the way we relate to that. Like instead of being sad about it, now we're actually happy. Instead of looking pathetic, you know, you get out of prison, you look all you have ashes and you look all messed up. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a headdress. I'm going to give you oil of gladness. I'm going to give you strength of praise or garment of praise. The question is, why? Why does God do all this stuff? I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question, biblically. I mean, you could go back to Genesis and answer that question. We're made in his image, so he's trying to get us back there. I mean, you can answer it so many different ways. But the way that Isaiah, in this passage, answers it, it's the very end of verse 3. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that... And here's the real why, that he may be glorified. When God does all this stuff, when he proclaims the year of the Lord, and Jesus is saying, I have already done that. In his life, he was already standing up and saying, I have done this. I fulfilled it. So how much more sure should we be that Jesus actually did that thing? And how much more sure should we be that we know the proclamations and we should have experienced Jesus reversing all this morning and giving us crowns and giving us gladness and giving praise for us to put on, he's really turned us into something uh, that's in verse. the end of verse 3 is really view, should be viewed as beautiful and useful and strong and glorious. And that is like this picture of this really big oak. We were at this uh, festival on Saturday at Candler Park. Um... And I always notice this. Anywhere I travel, I always notice really like grand trees. I don't know why. I just do. We were at the, the Candler Park Festival on Saturday and we were waiting on Steven to meet him and we were sitting by this really epic tree. It was so big that we were like sitting on the roots and stuff. Like they were big enough and high enough to just like sit on and hang out. And I just sat there and I was like throwing these acorns because I was bored. But I started thinking, I was like, man, this tree is huge. We're sitting on the roots, it's shading us, and it's providing me entertainment because there's acorns everywhere, right? But I I really did just sit there, like, thinking about that tree for a while. Isn't it, I mean, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but I always notice trees like that. And what God is saying in this text is, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. Why? So that he could take care of us, but ultimately so that we would be noticeable, and not just because like we want to feel good, but people are going to look at us and see oaks of righteousness, not of mourning and sin. They're going to see righteousness because God has done something for us. But so that other people, when they see us, they'll be able to say, "That must be of the Lord." They're going to look at that tree and be like, "God must have planted that." Okay? Because when I planted something, I was broken, I was a prisoner. I was sad. I had ashes. But when God plants something, he changes all of that. And he makes it an oak, strength. He makes it of righteousness, strong and beautiful and large. It's the planting of the Lord. And ultimately, when people see that we're plantings of the Lord, the hope is that God may be glorified. So when Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, stands up and he reads and he says, I've fulfilled this. That's a really hopeful thing because when I read passages like Isaiah 61, that's what I hope Jesus accomplishes. Like when I read the prophecies of the Old Testament, that sounds so great and so beautiful. Like Kirby referenced another one from Isaiah 25 this morning in Bible class about how God's going to like – the Messiah is going to be accompanied with these times of like celebration and wine and just like abundance. Like I read that. I'm like, man, I really – like I'm really hoping that Jesus actually did that. Right? Like, as a believer, I believe that he did, and I want to see that because that sounds awesome. It's really cool when we have instances like Luke chapter 4 where Jesus is like, I've already done this. He hasn't even died yet, and he's already saying, I did this part. And so as a believer, I can look at Isaiah 61 and say, okay, he's done this. What does this mean for me? That I can be an oak of righteousness, that other people can see that I'm a planting of the Lord, and God can be glorified. So do, when you look at Jesus, when you look at his life, you even look at his death, you look at his resurrection, when you observe everything Jesus was, is, did, does, do you see it as the favorable year of the Lord? Do you really believe that's what it was? Do you believe it actually has power and meaning to like change, to make you go from broken to bound, to make you go from captive to free, to make you go from sad to glad? Or do you just see it as something that he said and you you didn't believe it? You know, actually, when you continue reading in Luke chapter 4, the very end here in verse 23 kind of sums up, I think, in many ways, how unfortunately many of us are tempted to respond to Jesus' claims of being from God, having fulfilled scripture. Right after what we read in verse 23, Daniel didn't read this verse for us. Uh, it's because I didn't ask him to because I wanted to save it but look at what verse 23 says Luke 4 verse 23 and he said to them this is Jesus after they said is this not Joseph's son Jesus says doubtless you will quote to me this proverb physician heal yourself can you think of times really like kind of one big time where people started saying that to him Jesus says, I fulfilled this. And many of us have been or maybe even are still somewhat of a skeptic. We say, Jesus did a lot of great things. Maybe he didn't do this. And we need to be sure that he did, that he was of God. He is able to make us oaks of righteousness because he proved it by calling them out, saying, you're going to ask me to heal myself. Luke 23, when he's on the cross, save yourself. Right? If you're really the Messiah, come down from the cross. And Jesus' answer to that was his resurrection three days later, just like he said he would do. And so, you need to look at Jesus as having fulfilled scripture. that There's still, currently we're in that comma, the favorable year of the Lord is still being proclaimed. But, and Jesus is coming again, because he did heal himself. He did save himself. We know that, just as Isaiah says, there will be a day of vengeance of our God. So, do you see and do you believe in the favorable year of the Lord? Or do you reject that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of God and or reject his ability to deliver on promises? Are you an oak of righteousness? Are you a planting of the Lord? Or are you like some sad, ashen, bound up, cap- or broken hearted, captive person? If you are an oak of righteousness, are you fulfilling what God's hope for you and that other people see that? Or are you only an oak of righteousness like when it's convenient for you? I hope this lesson's been helpful for you to consider like that Jesus actually fulfills prophecy. And that prophecy has meaning for us. And that when we believe it, when we believe in Jesus, when we believe that He's the Son of God, when we follow His Word, we're baptized, all the things that come in obedience, that God can actually work through us to change us. And even in Jesus' day, He was already doing it. Does anyone here that has any needs of this group, personal, whatever, that you feel like we could help you with? Um, let us know while we're singing this song.